0: Man, it is good to see you this morning. Uh, I'm so glad you're here. And if you have a Bible, open it up to the book of Revelation. Uh, chapter two is where we'll be today. I know some of you, you start to open the book uh, of Revelation and your hand starts to shiver a little bit. You're like, oh my gosh, are we really going there, right? And you, you look at all the crazy stuff that's in the book and you're, you get a little nervous. Uh, sometimes I think it's because when we look at the book of Revelation, we, we just think future. We just think all these things that are out there. And I'll, I'll just get this right out of the way. Um, Uh, God's word says that uh, even Jesus didn't know the time or the hour, so figuring it all out, um, you're just not going to make that happen. And in fact, I think it would be dangerous if we could figure it out. Because if you could figure it out when Jesus was coming back, well, who knows how you'd live until the day before, right? And and so we're looking, we're in week three of a sermon series that we're calling Dear Church, where we're looking at seven letters, written to seven churches that are in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. And, And I just want to remind us, be praying for the people of Turkey. Uh, as you watch the news, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on over in that region of the world. And we need to be praying for them. And especially pray for the believers who are there. Because it is in times of crisis, in times of difficulty, that oftentimes the, the power of God just breaks through. And great things happen in the church. We always see the church thriving under persecution. So pray uh, for the church that's over there in Turkey and in Syria and places like that. Um, we're looking at these letters um, that Jesus dictated to the Apostle John. This is one of the cool areas in the Bible where we actually see biblical inspiration like firsthand because we know that the whole Bible is inspired by God and it's all um, without error, but um, this is one of those spots where we actually see Jesus look at John and say, hey John, grab something to write on, grab a pen, write this down. In fact, in many of your Bibles, uh, that section is in red because it's, you know, the words of Jesus. And and so we've got the words of Jesus to these seven churches. And one of the things that we need to understand is this, is that when these letters came to these seven churches, they didn't freak out. They they didn't look at these things and go like, oh my gosh, there's all this crazy dragon and the horror of Babylon and stuff and everything. They, They didn't freak out about it. They actually understood. And and, and so they got these letters that were written to them and they knew what these letters were all about. And because they understood what these letters were all about, we can understand what these things are all about and we can learn to apply them to us. And that's the biggest and most important part of this is that we can apply this. And we've been asking this question as we read these letters that, that Jesus sent to the churches, we're asking the question, what would it look like if Jesus was to write us a letter? What if if Jesus wrote a letter to Newberry Park First Christian Church? What what would that sound like? What what would we read? We we discovered that in every one of these letters there's some very similar pieces. There's an introduction part where Jesus introduces or reintroduces himself to the church. And he uses some interesting historical language to do that to show that he is really Lord of all. And then he would come in and he would give an encouragement to the church. And he'd say, hey, this is the area that you're doing really well in. And we all need encouragement, amen? But then after the encouragement, he would give an exhortation. In some places, that exhortation was just, you've gotta keep going. In some places, it was a scathing rebuke where he was saying, man, you have really missed the mark. And then at the end, he would have a promise for the church that says, hey, if you hear, if you read and heed what I've written to you and you obey this, then you are going to have a promise. And those are usually amazing things. Usually it's eternal life. And so we've got all of these different letters that we're looking at, and through those we're trying to look at it and say, what would Jesus write to Newberry Park First Christian Church? What would Jesus write to the church in America today? What would Jesus write if he wrote a letter just to you? Where are the places where God would say, good job? And where are the places where God might look at you and say, but I've got this one thing that we need to talk about. And what are those? And my prayer has been this week that we would really begin to identify those things. That we would hear his words of encouragement, we would hear his words of exhortation, and that we would learn to be his people because Following Jesus is just quite simply the best way to do life, right? And so we want to make sure that happens. So in week one, we talked about the church in Ephesus. These guys were people who were theologically correct. They had great sound doctrine. But Jesus said, but I have one thing against you. And you remember what it was? You have, yeah, you have lost your first love. And we ask this question. What are the things in life that are stealing your affections away from Jesus? Not that you don't think Jesus is great, not that you aren't glad that Jesus saved you, but what is it that is stealing your affection? from Jesus. And what are the things that you can do to increase your passionate love for the person of Jesus Christ and to just desire his presence? What are those things? And I hope when we, we asked you, we said, hey, figure out what those are and go do those things so that we could grow in our love for Jesus because he truly is our first love. Then last week we talked about the church at Smyrna. Smyrna was the faithful church even in light of persecution they were faithful and, and we ask these questions how has jesus how has jesus been faithful to you and we asked you last week to just like list all things like how has jesus been faithful to you i mean think about this last week how has jesus shown himself faithful and then the the second follow-up question was this then how have you been faithful to him because we want to be a faithful people a faithful church and be faithful in our relationship with him. And then this week, we're, we're moving to the, the third church. Um, we moved from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamos. and so in your Bibles, you might say Pergamum. Um, and Pergamum um, was just north. Remember, this was like a postal route uh, that these letters would come to. What's uh, interesting uh, is that the people, when they were carrying these letters, is that all of the churches got to see all the other letters as well. And, and so, you know, isn't that interesting? I mean, they got to see both the encouragement and the rebuke of each of the other churches. You're like, whoa, that'd be, that'd be kind of crazy, right, to, to see how, how that's working out in, in people's lives. And so today, we're, we're talking about the church at Pergamum, which is about 100 miles or so north of Ephesus. Now, before this morning, how many of you would say you, you knew about Pergamum? Do you know much about Pergamum? Okay, we got one or two people, okay? Um, But here's the deal, if you lived back in this time when John wrote this, if you lived back in the Roman period, if you lived in the time just after Jesus, you would have known about Pergamum. Because Pergamum was an incredibly um, thriving, popular city. Um, It was the Roman capital in the province of Asia, and we're gonna talk a little bit more about that in in, in just a couple minutes. In Revelations 2, starting in verse 12, it says this. It says, to the angel, or we've said the messenger, the angel of the church in Pergamum write write these things. Pergamum was a city, like I said, of incredible history. Uh, the Greek legend was is that it was built by the son of Hercules, because somebody would have had to have been strong enough to get all the building materials to the top of the Acropolis. Uh, it was built on top of this enormous Acropolis. In fact, when we got to go there uh, this last summer, um, you, you can hike it, but it's incredibly hard. There's cliffs on most of the sides, but we actually had to take a gondola up up to the top of this 1300 foot um uh, acropolis or large hill where the temples and where the main part of the city was and, and so you've got this gigantic thing up on top of the city it was like an impenetrable fortress but it wasn't just a fortress it was a place of worship it was world renowned for being a place of worship um Alexander the Great, when he was uh, in charge of things, uh, it is said that he held over a billion dollars in gold in Pergamum because it was so impenetrable. In fact, this little slope here, it's kind of hard to get a feel for it, but this slope here on this side is actually the least steep area going up into it, and they had this 10,000-seat auditorium, but the auditorium wasn't just for plays. It wasn't like, you know, the Hollywood Bowl or something. This place was a place of worship to the god Dionysus, and we're going to talk about him in, uh, in just a couple minutes. uh, They had the second largest library in the world at that time. The largest library was in Alexandria, Egypt. And Alexandria was so worried that that Pergamum was going to take over as having the largest library that they stopped shipping papyrus to Pergamum. And so the guys in Pergamum, they had to develop a different way to write. And so they developed and they invented something called Parchment right, animal skins, and so um, they had the world 's largest library of parchment books because they were the ones who first started binding books they weren 't just on scrolls and things like that. Um, so these guys had this enormous library, and that was huge back in the day. If you had a big library, you were an important place, and Pergamum was one of these important places. Um, under Caesar Augustus, Pergamum became the capital city of Rome in the province of Asia, and they were the first to adopt emperor worship. Now, one of the largest temples in this area was the uh, was the, uh, the temple to the Roman Caesars, and uh, they, they had this incredible place where um, they, they would come and people from all over the world would come to worship all of these gods. Pergamum was famous as a place uh, of worship for all the gods of the world. And like I said, people would come from all over Asia and literally all over the world to worship. Uh, they had the, the Temple of Athena. And um, the Temple of Athena w- was huge. Um, I think it's back a little ways. It's the one with the, yeah, this is the Temple of, of Athena. Athena was the, the goddess of wisdom and wisdom. And poetry, hence the whole library thing. She later becomes the goddess of war. There's Dionysus, which we'll talk about a little later. Uh, They had a huge temple to Dionysus. um, And he was the god of wine, drunkenness, and ecstasy. Okay, pretty crazy stuff. Then uh, the emperor, uh, one of the biggest temples that's there is really the temple to Trajan. Um, but it, it first was the temple, uh, you know, to, to worship the the emperors. There was the temple of Hera, the wife of Zeus, Demeter, the god of the harvest and fertility. Then there was the god of Asclepius. Okay, um, anybody ever heard of Asclepius? Okay, Asclepius is the guy, he's got this staff and he's got the serpent on the staff, right? And, and so he was the god of medicine and health. And here in this place, Pergamum, they had the, the largest medical center in the Roman Empire, um, there was a, a guy there named Glaeus, he was a, a popular doctor, and what they would do is you would, the way that you would worship in this place was kind of interesting. You would come to this place and they had this, um, they had this spring water and they had this fountain, when you would walk into these chambers, they had a fountain, and in the water they would put this sedative and people would come and they would drink it, they would kind of get into a hallucinogenic state, they would lay them out on these stone tables and then they would bring in uh, non-venomous snakes and let the snakes just just like go all over you, is anybody else just? Yeah, I saw some of you doing this number, right? It was just like no, anything but that, right? And then afterwards, when you woke up, you would go to the priest and tell him what you were dreaming, right? Which most of the time was snakes, right? And then they would tell you what was going on and then prescribe some kind of thing to help you out. But it was this great. It was this place where even the Roman emper, emperors would come to find healing in this place. Then there was even the temple to Isis. And those of you who know your, your mythology or your, you know, all these other things, you know that Isis wasn't an Egyptian, uh, or or Isis wasn't Greek or Roman. Isis was a Greek god. And one of the things that you you start to understand is that while Rome expanded its empire, it enveloped the place all the way from North Africa, all the way up into like, you know, Germany area and places like that. I mean, they just started to expand and expand and it was expanding so fast. And what they would do is they would tell people, hey, you can worship any God you want. You can worship the gods that you've been worshiping for years. You can do whatever you want as long as you include in your worship, worshiping the Caesars. Right? So they said, you can do whatever you want. Just make sure you worship the emperor and you're going to be okay. So every year they would have to go. They'd have to burn incense and they would have to make the statement. We talked about this last week. Curious Caesar, which meant Caesar is Lord. And so they would do that. And as long as you did that, everything is okay. You could, you could be part of the society. But if you wouldn't, you were kicked out, outcast, or even killed because of your, you know, re, because you wouldn't do that. So Rome, Rome uses this place as a central place for worshiping the other gods. And so in that, then you have this place, the next words of Jesus in verse 12 are these. He says, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, remember that um, this place, Pergamum, was the seat of Rome in Asia and it's where the temple of the, in fact, they had two uh, emperor temples there in Pergamum. And, and the Roman emperors, they had something um, in Latin, it was called ius gladi, okay? Eus gladi, which meant the right of the sword, okay? And so the right of the sword meant they had the power of life and death. Now, everywhere in your New Testament, in your Bible, that you have the word sword, almost everywhere... Um, they, they used this one word for sword. It's the word makaira. And makaira, if you think about it, makaira was this, it was about a 20 to 22 inch blade, kind of had a wooden handle on it. Think um, gladiator, right? The movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe. That's what he carried. It was kind of smaller. It was easy to handle, hand-to-hand combat type of thing. That was pretty easy. Um, and that's most of the places in your New Testament that you see the word sword, it was it was machira, Okay. Because that's what everybody carried. But there's seven places in the New Testament that they use this other word. And there's this other word. And out of those seven, six of them are in the book of Revelation. And it's this word rumphiah. Everybody say rumphia. Rumphia. Yeah, you got to get the rumph in there, right? Because it wasn't just your kind of basic, um, you know, little Machaira sword. It was like, well, this is what it was. This, this is a Ramphaya, okay? This is like the, you know, Braveheart, um, you know, kind of crazy Excalibur thing. And, and, and this was the sword that it talked about that the emperor would carry. And he had the right of the sword, which meant he had power of life and death. And he would pass that on to the governors. Now, being a central place of uh, kind of a capital for Rome in the, in the, emperor, in, in the, in the empire of Asia, um, the governor of this place would have had Ius gladi, right? The, the right of the sword. And in fact, most of the statues, almost every single statue of the Roman emperor where they have a sword, they don't have it in their sheath. Okay, they're holding the sword. Okay, because it's, again, part of their authority, their power, their authority over life and death, uh, gladius gladi. Okay, so now one of the places we see that in Scripture is when Jesus is, uh, you know, on trial. He's talking to Pilate, and Pilate looks at Jesus and he says, don't you know that I have the authority to release you or to have you crucified? Basically, Pilate, the governor at that point, is saying, don't you know I have the right of the sword? Don't you know that I can have you put to death um, because he had the power given to him uh, by Rome. And so when Jesus says, hey, I, uh, I have uh, this sharp two-edged sword, okay, which word for sword do you think he uses? Yeah, rumphia, right? Jesus says, I have the rumphia, okay? The double-edged sword, I have. And so what he's saying is, every other time you hear that word out there, you think of the emperor, he goes from now on, he says, when you think of that word, you think of me. Because he says, he is basically saying, I have authority over life and death, okay? The Roman governors aren't all that. He says, I am, I am the one who ultimately has the power of life and death in my hands. And so then, Jesus, uh, when, when, uh, when Jesus and Pilate were talking, Jesus' response to Pilate was this. He says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And so Jesus is saying he has all authority. Now, so he introduces himself in terms that they can understand, and then he goes on to an encouragement. And he says this. This is the first words he says. He says, I know where you live. Now, if you heard Jesus say that, if somebody comes up to you and goes, I know where you live. What are you thinking, right? Are you thinking, ooh, this is gonna be encouraging, (laughs) right? In fact, if Jesus came up to some of you and said, I know where you live, you'd be like, no, like, you know. But what he says is this, he says, I know where you live where Satan has his throne. He's not saying like, you're Satan and Satan's got a throne in your house. He's saying, like, no, I know this place and I know that Satan is alive and he's active there. I know this is a place where Satan dwells. And he says, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives." I mean, that's how dark of a place this was, this place that said, hey, this, is, this place is the throne of Satan. See, there's one temple that above all the other temples in Pergamum was the most popular, the one where people literally from all over the world would come to worship, and that was the temple of Zeus. Zeus. Okay, if you know who Zeus is, Zeus is like the supreme god. He's the you know, he's top on the org chart of gods. And so the temple of Zeus was here on top of this Acropolis. And people would come from all over the place. And it is believed that right down here, kind of in the middle, they found some places um, where, where uh, they had this large bronze bowl which is where they would sacrifice to Zeus, and what they would do is underneath this bronze bowl, they had this fire going all the time, and then they would take their offerings, and they would kind of put them into the belly of this bull, and because of all the fire up in there, it would, it would burn up the, the offerings, right? Well, this, this, is, this is actually is the exact temple of Zeus, and you could actually go see this today, okay? But not in Pergamum, it's in Berlin, it's in the Pergamos Museum in Berlin. Um, and so you might think, like, how in the world did it get there? Well, back in 1864, a, a German archaeologist named Karl Luhmann, he said he, he, he basically, they were finding this place, and they said, hey, we'll do the archaeology. We'll, we'll dig everything up, but we want this. And so they took this piece by piece. They took it to Berlin, and they actually built a whole museum around this place. And remember, okay, remember what this looks like and remember that right kind of in the middle of those steps there was a place that they believed was this bronze bowl where they would make these sacrifices to Zeus, okay? Now, here's here's where I'm gonna kind of like go off on a little tangent. This was fun this week because those of you who really like history, okay? And and this was known by the people of, the, the Christians especially of this area that they called that place right there in the middle where the altar to Zeus was, where they called it the throne of Satan, okay? Now, you fast forward, in 1933, there's a guy named Albert Speer. I don't know how many of you know who Albert Speer was. He was the chief architect for the Nazis in Germany. And where was the Temple to Zeus? It was in Berlin, right? So Hitler wanted to create a place in Germany where all of the people could go, where they could have these huge parades so they could demonstrate their power, right? And so they built this place in Nuremberg, and what Hitler told Speer was, he, says, he told Albert Speer, he says, I want you to design this great place, and they called it the Cathedral of Lights, and they said, where we're gonna have this giant parade ground where we can basically show off our authority and where Hitler could address all these people, and Hitler told Speer, he says, as your inspiration, I want you to go and study the Temple of Zeus in Berlin. And so, this is the, the body of the place that Speer created in Nuremberg. Okay? Now go back to the other picture. If you just kind of look at him real quickly, you, know, you can kind of see he had this inspiration of the thing. Now if you go for, fast forward and then you can kinda see that where the guys are standing out there on the thing. You've seen that if you're a history buff. You've seen it in movies. And then you can go to the next picture where you see the whole grounds. And this is the place. And that spot right above where the little Nazi flag in the very middle is was the podium. And the podium was this place where Hitler would come and he would, he would kind of you know, get, the, get the crowd going and he would, he would give all of his speeches. And this is the exact place where in 1935 Hitler announces the Nuremberg Law, which basically took away citizenship from all the Jews And the very first place in that very spot where modeled after the altar of Zeus and the spot in the middle of the thing going up, which would have been, you know, where they would have sacrificed people or, or, you know, made sacrifices to Zeus, Hitler stood and for the very first time used the phrase, the final solution, which became known as the Holocaust, which ended up in millions of Jews losing their lives. So you start to think about like, where does history go and what are the things that when, when people are evil, the extent to which it was going. So think about like, the people in Pergamum were living in this place where all of this idol worship was happening. And, and, and they were tempted constantly to, by, by the darkness of this city to get involved or be put to death like, like their friend Antipas See, Antipas, like like Polycarp from last week, he he was the one who believed even to the point of death and was killed just outside of that altar. And so Jesus comes to them and he says, hey, I know what's going on in your life. I know this place that you're living in. I know how difficult it is for you. And he says, but you have remained true to my name. You've held on to my name. And you did not renounce your faith. Even in the face of all of this opposition, you're holding fast. But then in verse 14, we get to the big but, right? He says this, he says, nevertheless. It's kind of one of those words you don't want to really hear from God. (laughs) He's like, you're doing really good, nevertheless. And he says this, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You're holding on tight, guys, keep doing that. But here's, here's the problem. And he says, yeah, I have these few things against you. He says, number one, he says, there are some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Now, how many of you know who Balaam is? Anybody know who Balaam is? We got a few of you, Sunday school folks, right? Okay, yeah, you know who Balaam is? Balaam was um, a prophet in the Old Testament. There was this guy named Balak, right? He was the king of Moab. And if you remember the story in the Old Testament, Jesus, uh, or Jesus, uh, Moses, he leads the children of Israel out of Egypt, right? They get out of captivity. They cross the Red Sea. They destroy the Amalekites. They come in, you know, the whole Joshua and the Battle of Jericho thing. And, And so everyone out there is absolutely frightened by this swarm of people. It's like over a million people coming through the desert. And Balak, the king of Moab, looks out he knows that the Israelites are coming he knows what they've already done to these other people and he says we're in big trouble so he goes to Balaam he sends people to Balaam because Balaam was kind of this prophet for hire and he says Balaam I need you to come and I need you to curse the Israelites because if you don't curse the Israelites and make something bad happen to them they're going to come and destroy us And so Balaam, Balaam looks at him and he says, well, it doesn't work quite like that. He says, "Uh, I can't just do whatever you tell me to do. I have to get the message from God. And so he goes, why don't you stay here for the night and I'll go talk to God and see what God says about this. And so he goes to God and he says, God, you know, I got this Balaam guy. He wants me to curse your people. And God says, no, like, "What, what, are you, are you kidding me? And God says, no, don't go with those guys, Right? So Balaam comes back and he says, sorry, you know, God says no. Well, the the guys start to leave, but then Balak, he's all angry, and he says, go back and talk to Balaam again and tell him, name your price, right? I'll pay you whatever you want. And so Balaam's response is this. Balaam says, hey, look, even if you gave me all the silver in all of Moab, I can't just just curse the people, you know, I, I have to hear this from God. And so he says, but you know what? We'll try it again. He, they, he says, why don't you wait here for the night? I'll go talk to God. So he goes over and he talks to God and he says, God, the Balak Bala guy's back and he's up the price. Um, what should I do here? And, and, and amazingly, you know what God says? God looks at, at, um, at, uh, at Balaam and he goes, go ahead. Go ahead, you go, right? Now, especially all you men in the room, married men especially, you should know that as those are very dangerous words, right? Like if you've been like, you know, you plan something or something's going on, the honey-do list is long at home, there's a lot going on, and you go to your wife and you say, hey, um, like I would like to go like golfing with the guys, or I want to go out and do a, go to the guy movie tonight, you know, and whatever else. And your wife just looks at you, puts her hands on her hips usually like this, right? And she gives you the look and she goes, go ahead, right? Whatever you do, don't go. Okay. Because basically what this means is I just dare you. Okay. Don't, 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 don't do that. Okay. You will pay for the rest of your life if you go. Okay. Now I don't, God's not like that, but here's the deal. God goes, go ahead, go, go on. So Balaam's all, all right. So he goes and so he jumps on his donkey, he's riding around, this is where the story really gets funny, and he's riding his donkey, and the donkey sees in the middle of the road an angel of God holding the rumphia, right? And the angel's holding the sword in the middle of the road, and the donkey's like, whoa, and the donkey goes off into the field. Balaam gets off the donkey, starts beating the donkey, he's like, stupid donkey, get back on the road, donkey gets back on the road goes a little further, sees the angel of God again with the big sword. He's like, ah, I'm not gonna do this, turns around, right? And Balaam gets off, starts beating the donkey again. Then um, the, he gets going one more time. Donkey sees the, the angel of, the, of God about to kill Balaam, and then the donkey just like sits down in the middle of the road. Balaam gets off, starts wailing on the donkey, you stupid donkey, right? And then the uh, we love the story. It says that then God opened the mouth of the donkey right? And the donkey, and and the donkey is like, like, what in the world are you thinking, man? That's in the Hebrew, okay? It's like, what in the world are you thinking? Like, haven't I always been a good donkey for you? Like, I've never led you astray before. Why are you beating me, right? And he's like, and so Balaam obviously freaked out, right? When your donkey talks, you freak out. And he's like, what's going on he says don't you see the angel and then it says you know Balaam looks and God let him see the angels like oh sorry donkey you know sorry about the beating and all this stuff and so they they, they end up going along this journey they finally get there and Balaam's like all right there's the Israelites curse them right well Balaam's like well all right I'll give it a shot and he's so he he starts to speak and he can't curse him all that comes out of his mouth are blessings for the children of Israel and Balaam's like dude I paid you like, what are you thinking, right? So he's like, well, let's try this again. Three times, same things happen. He's like, hey, like, go ahead, curse him, and he, oh, blessing just keeps coming out. So finally, and what we find out if you look at multiple places in Scripture is what Balaam finally does is this. Balaam says, hey, look, I, I can't curse him, and we can't corrupt them from the outside in. He says, but I think I know how you can, how you can mess with these guys. He says, if you really got to get them, you don't get them from the outside in, you get them from the inside out. And he says, so here's what you need to do. He says, he goes, if there's one thing I know about these Israelite men, um, they're, they're kind of weak in the knees for the women. And he goes, so go down to one of your towns, this town of Peor, where they worship Baal. And he says, and I know you got some good looking women down there. Why don't you bring them over and have them seduce the men of Israel and instead of kind of from the outside in, we're going to get them from the inside out. And what the, the Bible tells us, go home and read Numbers 22 to 24. It's a crazy story. Basically, uh, the, the it says the Israelite men were seduced by these women. And they gave in and they started to go and they started to, you know, have sex with these women. They started to worship their gods and eat the food sacrificed to these other idols. And so if you look at it, the whole idea is this. It's like... You know, we're always looking for this attack from here. It, it's really not these attacks from the outside. It's, it's what happens from the inside out that's so important. It's these small areas because what Balaam knew is this, is it's not just one big cursing from the outside. It's, it's what happens when we just compromise. When we put ourselves in these compromising situations and we say, a little bit of that won't hurt, Right? I mean, that's where he goes on in this passage. He says, you know, and some of you, you're following the teachings of the Nicolaitans. We talked about them a couple weeks ago. But, but the Nicolaitans were early agnostics. They were people who said you could separate the physical and the spiritual. They, they were people that said, hey, there's, there's different parts of your life. There's the, there's the sacred and, and then there's the, the physical, right? And, and, and you can separate those. That, that your, your soul is separated from your physical body, so you do whatever you want in the physical body as long as when you go back and you worship God, you just say, oops, sorry, you know, like, I'm all good. And this is the one place where I just, in my heart, I feel like if God was gonna write a letter to the church in the United States today, that we might hear some of this. Where he's saying, hey, you, you, you can't just separate your spiritual life from your normal physical life. You, you can't just separate and you can't just say, hey, you know, Sunday, Sunday's my day to, to worship, but the rest of the week can kind of do whatever I want. You can't say, hey, as, as, long as, I'm, as long as I'm, you know, going to church and doing Bible study and doing these things, that then, then all this other stuff, I can do kind of whatever I want and it's gonna be Okay. And the question for us to ask ourselves is, where are these places in our lives that we begin to compromise? Where we start to actually think, hey, you know, I can, I can act one way at church. I can act one way when I'm worshiping. I can act one way when I'm around God's people. But when I go to work, I can, I can kind of bend the rules a little bit. In this place, there was one of, one of the other largest temples was this uh, temple to Dionysus. And uh, the way that you worship Dionysus was, um, it was basically a frat party gone wild, okay? You're thinking frat parties are crazy? This is like one to the nth degree. And, and you would go to these things called a symposium, right? You think of symposium, you think of going somewhere where and kind of listening to a person, like maybe talk or whatever, and you're thinking maybe kind of boring or something like this. Back in this day, a symposium was where you went and it was like a drunken crazy feast, you had a guy called the, the Symposiarch. His job was to make sure that you had everything you needed so that you could enjoy the evening. And he was in charge of, these, uh, of, of the wine, basically. And so they would come in, and we have some writings from this time period, um, where, uh, from, the, um, from these um, Symposiarchs that was actually found in Pergamum. And, and here's what it says. It says that they would have ten craters of wine. And Crater was this big, huge bowl they held. Most of them held somewhere around 10 gallons, right? And so they would go into these little places, into these rooms, and they would have all these people get together. And the whole idea was, if you wanted to do business with somebody, this was like, you know, going out for dinner after the business thing, right? You kind of seal the deal, okay? And so you would go in, and the symposiarch would come in, and he would bring the first crater of wine, and everybody would drink. And here's what the, the um, symposiarch, the, the writings we found, he said um, each of them was, each of the craters was for something different. He says, The first crater is for your health, okay? Then they would bring in the second crater, and that was for love and pleasure. The third crater of wine was for a good night's sleep, and when consumed, it said all the wise men would wander home, okay? So after you got the third 10 gallons down, everybody's like, all right, that's good, I'm good, I'm checking out, right, I'm going home. The fourth crater was for bad behavior and arrogance, the fifth was for shouting, the sixth for drunken revel. the seventh for fighting and black eyes, the eighth was for breaking the furniture, the ninth was for depression, and the tenth was for madness and unconsciousness. Okay, so these guys would just go and go and go and go till everybody's just tanked, right? I mean, this thing was just insane. And one of the things that was happening is you'd get Christian people who were like, I can just, I can go till we get to the third one, right? Because that's that's when wise people, they they head home, right? And I think what's happening here is, is what Jesus is saying is, hey, Don't let yourself, you know, get corrupted by. Don't don't compromise. Don't put yourself in these positions of compromise where all of a sudden you think you've got it, but the next thing you know, you're down laying out, passed out at Crater Ten. He's saying, don't don't put yourself in those situations. And then, so what are, what are we supposed to do about it? Well, he, he goes on in verse 16, he says this. He says, repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come and I will fight against them with the rumphiah of my mouth. It says that God's word cuts. Like it says in Hebrews 12, the word of God is living, active, sharper than every, any two-edged sword. He's saying, repent. See, one of the problems I think a lot of us have is we think that repentance is kind of a one-time deal. You know, we just say, oh, man, yeah, I'm sorry. I've messed up. I recognize my sin. I want Jesus. We think then we're all good and we, you know, get our fire insurance and we just kind of live life. But this morning, I hope we realize this. Do you understand what a gift repentance is? I mean, we think of repentance, we think, man, that's a hard thing. Why? Because it's admitting that I've messed up. Repentance is saying, I, I'm a broken individual and I have sinned. And it is not a one time fix all deal. We should be repenting on a regular basis because I don't know about you, but do you break your life pretty regularly? Do you sin pretty often? The good news is this, is that you can come in repentance and get that stuff taken care of. You don't have to somehow, you don't have to hide it. You don't have to avoid it. You don't have to put it away somewhere until you've got enough stored up to like, okay, now it's time to repent. Every time you recognize that there's a piece of your life that's walking off the path with Jesus, you can stop and you say, hey, guess what? I need to get this straightened out. And every single time God comes to you with open arms and says, I've been waiting for you. That's the glory of repentance, is that you don't have to stay on the wrong path. You don't have to just hold on to this stuff. You can give it to him. You can say, I've been going the wrong way, Lord, and I've got to come back in your direction. And he says, yes, yes, my child, I love you. Welcome home. The promise in this passage is in verse 17, where it says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And I hope we hear what God's Spirit is saying to us. And he says, to the one who is victorious, one, I will give some of the hidden manna. Uh, the tradition was, as if you could find this hidden manna, you would have eternal life. So he's basically saying, I will give you eternal life. He says, I also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it known only to the one who receives it. What's cool, uh, if, if you would, back then in this time period, if you were put on trial, they would give every person in the jury a black stone and a white stone, and then that's how they would say, you know, black stone, you were guilty, white stone, you were, you were innocent, right? So he's basically saying, I will find you innocent, okay, if you, if you heed my words. The other cool thing was um, that uh, gladiators were usually slaves, But eventually a gladiator could earn his freedom. And when he earned his freedom, they would take a white stone and they would etch the gladiator's new name. They always had a name for who they were in the the gladiator field, right? But they would etch a new name on the stone and he would carry that stone around to remind him that he was free. And what Jesus is saying here is if we will repent, if we will turn and say, God, I've messed up. I have this piece in my life that that I've been hiding that's broken and I've sinned and I want to give it to you. And then Jesus says, I will find you innocent and I will write your new name on this stone and you can hold on to that just to remind you that you're free. And I wonder how many of us forget on a day-to-day basis that we are freed people by the grace of God. And sometimes when you don't recognize that you're free, you fall back into the same old stuff a whole lot easier. And so folks, hold on to the new life that Jesus gives you. Hold on to the new name that he's written upon your hearts. And today as we kind of enter into our time of communion, I want you to just think of two questions, two questions for today. Number one, where do you need to repent? Oh, folks, repentance is a good thing. Where do you need to repent? Where, where's that, that sliver of self or that, that place where you're still just holding on to a little bit that you need to turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm giving this up to you. And as God's spirit leads you this morning, if that's you, maybe right where you're at or if you want to come up and kneel and pray, then just offer that up to the Lord and say, Lord, This is this is yours. Take this. And then just imagine the Lord writing your name on that white stone saying, You're free, my child. As you take the the bread that represents Jesus' broken body and the cup that represents Jesus' blood, where do you need to repent? And then ask yourself the question: where are you tempted to compromise this week? And maybe head that off ahead of time and say, you know what? I know this is coming. I know this is where I'm tempted. But this is where I'm going to recognize that I am free in Jesus Christ. And I don't have to choose that any longer. And allow him to cleanse you. What gods of this world are easily grabbing your attention? Are they the gods of materialism? Work? Sex? Pornography? Cheating on taxes? I don't know where it might be. Where are the places that you tend to compromise? And will you give those over to the Lord and allow him to cleanse you? Allow him to pronounce you innocent. So think about that and dwell with that this morning as you take communion. And then allow God to work in your heart and help you to be fully his. Let him know that he can have it all. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord God, you're incredibly good, and thank you, Father, that we can come into your presence, even as sinful, broken people, and that, Lord God, your desire is to to take those things and to, Father, put us back together again for our good and for your glory, Father. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would show us the places in our lives, Lord God, that we, uh, we hold back the places, Father, where we easily stumble, those, those places where, where we allow ourselves to get compromised, where, where Father, we, we just give in and we start to worship the things of the world. And, Father, would you, would you strengthen us through your Holy Spirit to be able to say no? But, Father, when we fail, Father, help us to be quick to repentance. Help us to be quick to make things right with you so that we can continue to live the life that's blessed by you. Lord, we love you, we thank you, we praise you, and we pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.